Nate's going to come up. He's going to read from us from Nehemiah. We'll continue with the word. Let's continue in worship, standing, as I read uh, selected verses from Nehemiah uh, chapters 8 and 9. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded in Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they had heard. On the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And all the ears of all the, and, and, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the meaning. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept fast, the, they kept the, fe the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly, according to the rule. Now, on the 20th, 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Many years you bore with them 
and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear, and therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted with wickedly. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and have a seat. Thanks, Nate. Well, I have lifetime alignments on my cars, and I love it. Ask my wife about it. Every time I get my car realigned, I tell her how glad I am that I have lifetime alignments on my car. Now, you may not know what that means, and um, uh, Tires Plus, and I'm getting no money for this moment, just so we're clear. Uh, Tires Plus uh, gives me this, basically at the beginning of owning my car, I give them about $150, and then every single time I go in, I take my car in to get an oil changed, they align my wheels. Now, again, if you're not mechanically inclined, which neither am I, um, <coughs> you may not realize how important alignment is. Let me help you. The alignment in your car is how your tires line up with one another. Are there some really highly in mechanically inclined people here? Good. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Are there some liars here? Um, so apparently, since none of you know what you're talking about either, this is great. I can pretty much say anything. So the alignment is your, how your wheels go together. And it, what's pivotal about an alignment, which you, of course, may not realize, is that if your wheels are aligned, like, you get much better like gas mileage. It doesn't wear out your tires. Uh, if they're misaligned, like, you get the shakes. Like, you've ever had that time where you, like, press on the gas, you borrowed your friend's car? Let's call it your friend's car. You borrowed your friend's car, and you pushed on the brakes, and the, and the steering wheel went da 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 That thing? Y'all remember your car when you were 16? That is happening because your tires are misaligned. Now you know. What's important is to understand this, is that when your tires are misaligned, it's like it makes it risky when you brake. Um, it, it, again, bad gas mileage, and your tires wear out really, really fast. So, so alignment's really, really important. And all of you should have a lifetime alignment and be as happy about it as I am. Now, when you hit potholes, when you run into things, when you, when you curb your car unintentionally, of course, again, uh, that's when things start getting troublesome. And so every time I get to go in, I get to see just how many curbs have been hit, how, how many potholes, and, and they tell me just how far out I was. And, and usually the further out, the more realignment happens, the happier I am. I don't know why that's the case, but... But that's how it happens. We run into stuff, and that's exactly how life works, too, isn't it? Moving through life, and we don't realize that we're misaligned. We've, we've hit a few things, we've, we've run into some stuff, and we didn't realize that kind of our life has gotten a little misaligned, and we're unaware of it. The good news is, are you ready? This is what you're going to tweet today. This is your pastoral dad joke for the day, that God has a lifetime alignment package for you. It's true. God has a lifetime alignment package for you. Another way of saying this is that God calls us to live in purposeful rhythms that reorient us, that, that realign our lives, that realign us towards him. 
towards who he is. And that, that realign us towards, towards the good life. The whole good life that is holiness and, and, and joy and purpose that he has for us. He has purposeful rhythms for our sake. And I just got to say, I need constant realignment. And I would suggest to you that you need consistent reorientation all the live long day. And the good news is, as I said, God's in the business of reorienting and realigning our lives. And we see this in this morning's passage in, in Nehemiah. Now, I had Nate read some excerpts from Nehemiah 8 and 9, and those are two really super long chapters, and it, they're long chapters. And so, but let me give you if, you, if you're like, hey, Nehemiah, awesome, don't actually know anything about it, let me just like set the ground so we're all on the same page. Nehemiah was this like very, um, very affluent and very powerful kind of right-hand man to the king of Persia who ran the world at that time. And, and he came to him as a Jew and said, listen, I've got, there's trouble down in Jerusalem. The, the walls are torn down and there's, there's disreputation from, from all the people. And I would like to go down and, and rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And he gets not only permission, but he gets all the supplies he needs. And he heads down to Jerusalem and he rebuilds this wall. And he pulls in families and individuals and, and laymen and, and priesthood and, and, and the rich and the poor. And everybody participates. And in 52 days, they rebuild this wall. It's incredible. Everyone's going like, how could this happen? 52 days. Nehemiah and the people of God, with the help of their Lord, rebuild the wall. And so that's, that's kind of where we find ourselves. And it says that they completed it on the 25th day of the sixth month. And we find ourselves here in chapter 8 beginning... Basically, five days later, on the first day of the seventh month, they actually will do a dedication, but it'll actually help it happen later in chapter 12. The first thing that happens is they find themselves in the middle of basically their church calendar. Some of the rhythms that God had given in his word about what it meant to listen to him and to follow his readings. Now, it's impossible if you listen to those readings and if you spend some time in this passage, to, to read this passage and, and miss the centrality of both the reading and the preaching of the Word of God, the Scriptures. It's one of the reasons why here we have such a centrality, such a, a center point of that we preach and we teach the Word, we read the Word here because we believe it is central in that realignment process as we gather, as we worship together, because God has spoken to his people. And he's done so through his word, and he's chosen to reveal it to us, and to reveal not only himself, but the nature of ultimate reality, how, how the world really is. He's given it to us, and he's done so for our good, or as James K. Smith says, for our flourishing. I want to read a, a, a quote from, from his book, a desiring the kingdom that, that helps and can help hopefully orient, align us to some of this. He says, humanity and all of creation flourish when they are rightly ordered to a purpose or intent that is not their own choosing, but rather is stipulated by God. Creation is created for something, for a particular end envisioned by the creator. The reading of the law is a displacement of our own wants and desires, reminding us 
that we find ourselves in a world not of our own making, which is why all of our attempts to remake it as we want it, as if we ourselves could be little creators, are not only doomed to failure, they are also doomed to exacerbate suffering. The announcement of the law, of the scriptures, remind us that we inhabit not nature, but creation, fashioned by a creator, and that there is a certain grain to the universe, grooves and tracks and norms that are part of the fabric of the world. And catch this, listen. And all of creation flourishes best. This is the question, right? How, what is flourishing? How is good, the good life? All of creation flourishes best when our communities and relationships run with the grain of those grooves. Indeed, the biblical vision of human flourishing implicit in worship means that we are only properly free when our desires are rightly ordered, when they are bounded and directed to the end that constitutes our good. That is why the law, though it comes as a scandalous challenge to our modern desire for autonomy, amen, is actually an invitation to be freed from purposeless wandering. It is an invitation to find the good life by welcoming the boundaries of law that guide us into the grooves that constitute the grain of the universe and are conducive to flourishing. You can have that quote if you want. That's, I mean, I don't know how else to say it, like, that's how the world works. And that's also why the world doesn't work. If you're wondering, that's just a summary of how the world's supposed to work and how we're supposed to participate in it and how when we don't, it doesn't. That's flourishing. The alignment, entering the grooves that have been put in there by the Lord who says, if, you, if you'll be on the grooves, on the path, on the norms which I have established, there is flourishing available for you. Now, there's flourishing. It doesn't mean there's not pain. It doesn't mean there's not suffering. I'm not talking about that. But there's flourishing in the midst of whatever is upon you. That's why we articulate preaching here at Roswell as worshiping together through preaching. This is our philosophy. We worship together through preaching because it brings the truth about God through the scriptures to the gathered people of God, inspiring us to respond to his grace and to his truth with faith and obedience. Which is why when we preach, we preach the text scripturally within its context. We're, our goal is to preach the truth, not just our own opinion. We preach Christ and the gospel every single time. We preach good news, not good advice. We preach to the heart. Our goal is, is to preach in a way, to, to speak in a way that makes the truth real to the heart, all the way to the heart, the control center of our life and affections, not just clear to our minds, though clear to the mind. And so with that in mind, I want to talk about a couple things that we see in the passage this morning. I think there's three particular things that come directly out of this passage that affect and, and, and impact us, are appropriate to us. As we look at the people in this, in this particular set of passages, we see that they gathered expectantly. We see that they listened actively and they responded wholeheartedly. That they, they gathered expectantly, that they listened actively, and that they responded wholeheartedly. Well, first they gathered expectantly. Man, this worship set this morning, opening up, could not have been more fitting. 
Verse 1, chapter 8 says, And all the people gathered as one man. Verse 5, I don't think Nate read that. It says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood expectant. Chapter 9, verse 1, it says, The people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners. We gather gather expectantly when we gather as a prepared people. We see in these verses is a people that are prepared to hear. They're they're, they're present. They're they're standing in expectancy. They're they're fasting in anticipation. They're, They're separating themselves from the surrounding dynamics of the culture that pull their hearts away from being able to be present in that moment, to be able to hear the realignment that God has for them. They're prepared. And so let me ask you, how did you prepare yourself this morning? How did you prepare yourself today to to meet with God, to be met by God? I I preached a sermon, uh, I think it was last year, on our Worship Together series, talking through uh, worship as preparation. And and so, like this morning, are are you rested? Did you... Did you arrive with enough time to not feel wildly frenzied or to hate your children and that's all you can think about right now? Are you coming with with worship songs already on your heart and on your lips as you walk in the door? Is the real you showing up right now? Or are are you suited up to, to be something because you need to be something here are you, are you prepared? Are we prepared? We gathered expectantly, and we gathered expectantly when we come prepared. And we also are expectantly when, when we come with anticipation. God is going to meet with us. God is going to meet with me. You see that the people of Israel had had other stories, other moments, whether it was the, the, um, the dedication of the temple or, or the dedication of the tabernacle, when the glory of the Lord filled the space. And there was this anticipation that when you prepare yourself with and for the Lord, that, that he's going to show up and he's going to meet you. And some of what it means to come and to gather expectantly is to, is to come expecting to hear from God, expecting to be met by him, believing that that he has something for you. Not cynically that, that surely it's got to be for someone else. That he has good for you. What would it look like if we believed that, that God was waiting for you? That as you walked in these doors, that there was a sense that there's a particular thing that he's wanting to realign in your heart and, and your desire is to cooperate with that that he wants to give himself to you, and that the last thing you would want is to miss out on that. One of the practical implications of this, as we settle into this new space, is um, the acoustics in the gathering space are awesome. If you're ever here all by yourself, I'm not sure why that would happen, but if you're ever here all by yourself and you sing in there, it's like awesome. You sound great. If I sound great, you sound great, trust me. But, 
the unfortunate dynamic of it is that when these doors are open and there's people having a conversation out there, you know what happens? It comes pouring in here. And so this is what I would ask. If we're, if we're anticipating, if we're expecting about the fact that God is going to meet us in here, what would it look like for us to be the kind of people who were in this room at the end of the countdown? And, and I want to say this. This is for your sake. I know it's the case. But it's also for each other's sake. And honestly, I think it's to honor God. This is, this is some of the ways in which we gather expectantly. Expecting something for each other as much as we do for ourselves. Like that, they'd be, be prayerful for the person next to you that, that God would meet them. And wildly, expecting it to happen. Now, I, I don't think that the glory of the Lord is going to fill this room and we're all going to have to get out because that's usually what happens when the glory of the Lord fills a room. Everyone has to kind of move out. But, and there's been revivals and they've always been accompanied by amazing preachers and, and that's, well. And um, so there's always been amazing things that have happened in moments of revival. But like, but the Lord wants to meet with you and he wants to meet with me. And, and your presence here and your participation, your engagement is part of what fuels that for and with each other. He has something for you, loved ones. It says that all came as one man. Over and over it says all the gathering, all the people, all the people gathered. It mattered that they were all together, unified, spiritually encouraging each other from a dynamic that, that the presence of the Lord in worship matters to one another. Your voice matters in this room. In the songs that we sing, your presence at the table matters. It, you need it, but it matters that you're here for the gathering, for the people. When you're here, it increases my joy. It increases each other's joy. Do you believe that? Do you believe that when the gathered people, got, that it increases our joy with one another? There's no better thing that you could be doing this morning. Unified around the things of God. For there to be a significant effect in preaching and the hearing of the world, two things need to happen. I need to be praying expectantly, and you need to be praying expectantly. And when those two things happen, and when all the people that come up here and preach, and when those two things happen, then God does what he does. And that is, he meets you, he answers, he speaks to you, he invites you into more of himself. That's what he's in the business of. So may we renounce passivity and come expectantly every week that we would hear from God and see him. So not only do we gather expectantly, but we listen actively. Verse 8 of chapter 8 says, They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That is my job. Reading from the book of the law clearly and giving the sense. Every, every preacher that preaches up here, it's the job of the elders. For those of you who have gifts of teaching and, and knowledge, that's some of your job, is, is to be able to make sense of what God is saying in his word. Who here has read a passage in the Bible and been like, I have no idea what this is talking about? Anyone? Yeah. It'll still happen to me. I'll be like, what? This is in here? I read this thing like dozens of times. This is in here. 
What in the world? Commentary helped me. We need help. You need help to understand the word. It's arrogant to think that you can only just read the Bible and have no one explain thing any, ever, and, and you can just be on your little island. That's arrogance. You need to understand the sense, and sometimes it's plain, and sometimes it's not, and sometimes it's not what you want to hear, and so you need to hear the sense from someone else. They read from the book, the law, clearly, that's my job. I get to say that this is what the Bible says, this is what it means, and, and this is what I think it might mean to you, and by implication, onward, for you. Verse 3 of chapter 8 says, And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. That is your job. To actively listen for the voice of God. To the promptings of the Spirit. Kind of promptings of the Spirit that speak to your spirit. That's your job. That, That you would actively be listening. And this active listening that God's calls us to is so that you would understand. Twice it said, and, and all who could understand, men and women, all who could understand, do you understand what you're hearing, what you're, what you're reading? What does it mean to you? And more significantly, are you taking responsibility from it for your own spiritual growth and development? Are you working it out? Are you, are you thinking it through? Are you, are you taking in the implications from it? Like when I ask you the questions like, are you taking responsibility for your own spiritual growth and development? What are you thinking? You're like, the Falcons are terrible this year. Or are you thinking, like, am I? Like, it, have I just assumed that, that someone else was going to do it f- for me to a degree, or I'll, 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 I'll later? Or that, like, this is just really primarily for, for my good, and this is, you know, it's a good thing to be a part of a good community of people that do good things for the world? Or, or do you believe that God is actually interested in you owning the reality of your own spiritual growth and development? Now, we have a role to play. I have a role to play. The church has a role to play, no doubt about it. And, and we want to. We want to grow and get better at it. But are you taking responsibility for your own spiritual development? And when we ask those kinds of questions, are you entering that question? Are you listening actively to say, God, what do you have for me? Holy cow, maybe I'm not. What does that mean? What are the implications? Because God has stuff for you, loved ones. We listen actively so that we understand. Call to listen actively from the heart with our lives open before the word and before the spirit's examination. This is what it means to listen actively. It means and taking your life when you walk in here, when you start listening to songs or there's a reading and you don't go like, wow, that's a long reading. That's a lot of verses at the bottom. Instead going like, huh, what is this about? I wonder what this has for me. And taking your life and you, and you open it before the Lord and before the spirit, before the word, and you let your life be examined by him. That's the act of listening. Like right now, like what's, what's the Spirit saying to you? In what ways is he like touching and pushing on things that you're going like, I really don't want to think about this right now. Listen actively 
from the heart. It's, it's actually, it's joining Psalm one, the psalmist of 139, right? Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. See if there's any wicked way in me. It's search me and, and know my heart. See if there's anything there and lead me, lead me in the way everlasting. Some of us come to church and we enter worship. We listen to God's word. Um, this is the imagery. Some of us come and we're like the person who goes to the gym and sits down on one of the machines and watches the trainer work out. And then we go home and we're cynical about our gym membership and about like, I just don't feel like things are changing with me. I always see that's an exaggeration, but... Well, there's a friend of mine, he called it have, I mean, paying your fat tax. You know, you just, you got a gym membership, you don't go. You just pay your fat tax, you feel better. <laughs> I didn't make it into my notes, but that's probably applicable in some ways. This isn't your spiritual tax, right? Listening actively to God because he has something for us that we would be this is the imagery that came to me, is, is Jacob, when he's wrestling with God, it's just a fascinating passage, there's like a great sermon out of that, there's not today, and uh, so he's wrestling all night with the Lord, and, and eventually the Lord hurts him, there's more to that, he touches his hip, dislocates his hip, and he won't let go. And literally it says, the Lord says, I says, let me go, and he says, I will not let go unless you bless me. Like that, that's that's expecting and listening actively. Lord, I'm not letting go until you bless me, until you, until you give me something that's going to make me more like you because the more I'm like you, the more aligned I am, the more flourishing I'll experience. And so, so I'm not letting go. I'm listening. I'm, what do you have? What do you have? What do you have? I'm not letting go unless, unless you bless me. And you know what? If we have a God who wants to bless you, you know, you know this, right? He wants to bless you in these ways. G.K. Chesterton, it's my favorite quote from him. He said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. We listen actively by, by staying with it. And one of the things that shows up in this passage is that both in chapter 8 they go from early morning until midday. Uh, in chapter 9, it says for a, for a quarter of the day, they, they, were, they, were, they were listening to the word, and for a quarter of the day, they were confessing and praising. Quarter of the day, just so we're clear, three hours. Six-hour service. So, because we are a people of the book, starting next Sunday, <laughs> six-hour services. Now, that's not the application of that passage but is that they stayed with it and at it. They remained present in it. And every, every Sunday morning, one of the things that we try to pray for is, dist is distraction. Like y'all have an unreal, we all have an unreal amount of distractions in our life, right? Like this is a super focused time for me. I'm talking at you, like I'm, I'm very aware. You, you don't have that. You don't have that, you know, kinetic energy going through you right now. And so like, it's going to take a certain amount of work. You have to stay at it. 
You have to remain focused. And what's amazing to me is to watch what happens after a long morning of of hearing the word, that they're present enough to their own heart and soul that they, that they repent, that they, that they weep, that they, some of the responses end up coming out of after a long time, apparently of standing. Listen actively by staying at it, declaring, asking God, show me your glory with an open heart. Let me just say this. We don't want to just have services here. Man, we didn't want that at Henry Springs either. We don't want to have services. We want to meet with God. That's what I want for you. That's what I want. That's why I'm here. I want to meet with God, and I want God to meet with me. I want God to meet with us. That, that's why we're here. Now, I want him to meet with you and you to meet with him, not just here. Please. But here, absolutely. Intentionally and focused and so... Let's gather expectantly, let's listen actively, and then let's be the kind of people that respond wholeheartedly. What is the effect of God's word on an expectant and listening heart? There's two pieces. First, there's weeping and rejoicing. There's weeping and rejoicing. Verse 9, it says, The day of, I'm sorry, this day is holy to the Lord, your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So they hear the words of the law and they start weeping. Like they were, they were struck by it. They were, it hit them right what they needed to be hit. When God is convicting you, it's good news. It's good news. One of the things is it's a manifestation that the Spirit is alive in you. Oh, I'm not saying it's pleasant, but it's such good news. If you're in a season right now where God is convicting you a ton, like, praise God, that's awesome. It's what he does. He's, he's inviting you into more, and so there's, there's weeping when you realize, I, I'm not open with my things. I'm I live isolated and, and disconnected and hidden. and I'm escaping or medicating or, or, or numbing. I'm, I've never shared my faith with anyone. There's weeping and there's rejoicing. Verse 10 says, then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to everyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to your Lord. And do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, this is, this is the double, double-edged, double-sided reality of the gospel is that, that, that we weep and we rejoice. That we weep and we rejoice. That's worse than you think. And it's also more incredible than you could imagine. That you, when you hear the word rightly, that it cuts and it heals. That it produces mourning and it produces rejoicing. That when you hear the word rightly, it realigns you for flourishing. Both are true. 
You see in chapter 9 of Nehemiah, the reading, the reading of, of, the, of the scriptures for a third of the day leads them to this profound time of, of confession and then also, so they confess their sins and then also they, they praise the Lord. And, and this section that Nate read 17 to 21, I think captures both of those simultaneously. So, so let's experience this one more time because this is you. It's a rehearsal, a surprising reality of the grace of God, his unmerited favor. So this is what it says in 17. It says, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them. They, were st they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return them to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. When they had made for themselves a golden calf and saying, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud that led them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from them on the way that they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and you did not withhold your manna from their mouths and you gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. You, you, do you see it? The weeping of like stiff-necked people, rebellious, blasphemous, giving credit to things that are not God in any way, shape, or form. But God, but God, he didn't abandon them. He didn't reject them completely. He actually rescued them, and he continued. He didn't say, oh, yeah, well, no manna for you. You're going to die in the wilderness then. No, no, he was gracious and faithful. This is God, not just the God of the New Testament. This is God. Faithful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And so the question for us is like, is are we weeping and are we rejoicing? If you're only weeping, if you're only getting weeped, then, then you're missing something because, because the weeping should lead to rejoicing. And the rejoicing should invite you into weeping. It's just a big circle. This I know, that if, that if, you, if you come to a church event expecting to be entertained or, or amused or um, anecdotal, it's highly unlikely that you're going to weep. And if you don't weep, you have nothing really to rejoice over. They responded wholeheartedly by weeping and rejoicing, and then they responded by uncomfortable, disruptive disobedience. I'm sorry, obedience. Uncomfortable, disruptive obedience. Now, at some point, it would appear, in light of their response, at some point during the reading of the law, they ran into Leviticus chapter 23. Now, I know you guys can all quote Leviticus chapter 23, <laughs> but um, <coughs> Leviticus chapter 23, for the three of you who don't know, is the section where he talks about the Feast of Tabernacles. 
And the Feast of Tabernacles was this feast that was implemented by God that said, this is what I want you to do. On this day, at this time, what I want you to do is I want you to go and find some branches, and you're going to not live in your houses right now. You're going to go out into the courtyards or on the top of your roof. You're going to put some branches together, and you're going to live in those branches, under those branches, under those booths for a week. And you're going to do that because I want you to remember that there was a time when you didn't have a home. A time when what I just read happened, that you, you marched around in the middle of nowhere with nothing and I gave you everything you needed. For 40 years I provided for you in booths, basically. And you were homeless and, and I cared for you. That's the, that's the declaration of what God was inviting people to in Leviticus chapter 23. And so what happens is that the second day of the month, this month, seventh month, the second day they must be reading Leviticus chapter 23 because they go like, wait a minute. Apparently in 14 days, we're supposed to be in booths. And they did it. Now, I know there's campers in the room. And so you'd be like, sweet, a week in a tent. I can, I can dig it, you know. Um, what is it, the 70s? I'm not sure what happened there. <laughs> um, to redact my dig it. Um, but what is God doing there? I mean, just think about it. Okay, I know right now it's ridiculous that we'd go get branches. And, but in the middle of having a real home and real, having a, a real life and, and a real town and a real city, to go and start cutting down branches and to living oddly like this for an entire week, what is he doing? He's realigning. He, he's inviting them into a rhythm that's going to do something odd and uncomfortable and strange even, that off the top of your head you go, this doesn't seem like it's going to do much honestly. And by participation in it, well, I'm, I'm convinced their participation in it is what yields chapter 9 and the confession that happens there. But they, they made themselves available to God's way of realigning. And it doesn't make a ton of sense, and it's kind of weird, and that's a lot of the stuff God invites you into even today. That, that God still offers you means of grace, some of them strange and peculiar. It's some of the ways in which we try to invite you in during, by, by, as we step into the church calendar. Let's use an example. We're about to go into Advent, right? We're about to start the church calendar year, and we're going to invite you into a time where you take a devotional, an Advent devotional, on Sunday nights or during the week, each week of Advent, and you, and you enter the devotional, and you, and you do it. You, just, you, just, you do it. And oftentimes, it's awkward, have you guys done, you guys have done this before, right? Isn't it sometimes just awkward? Especially if the, maybe if there's two of you, or maybe you got your kids around and they don't want to participate, like they're grumpy, and you're like, no, no, this is supposed to be a spiritual time. <laughs> you know, and you're, and you're like trying to force the thing, but it's, it's a good thing, and I mean, there's times where we're reading, and we're on a, on a Sunday night, right? And we're, and we're like, we're reading it, and we're singing the songs, and, and we don't sound great, you know, and but I cannot tell you the ways in which God has met my family doing that Advent devotional. The, t the times in which, like I've heard things from my mother-in-law that I, knowing her 30 years, I'd never heard from her before. As we just answer those awkward questions that we have in there. You know them if you've done them. It's entering a process, it's realigning by stepping into a path that allows you to become more like Jesus. It's, it's submitting yourselves to processes like this letting him do his work, disruptive as it may be. And here's the thing. It's an act of a faith and obedience because it's anticipating that God is going to do something with it. 
And all I know is this. Throughout the history of the scriptures, it appears that God uses some of the wildest, strangest, unlikely things to do incredible things. So let us not be, and this is, I'm preaching to myself on this. Let us not be arrogant enough to think that God can only use certain means and certain avenues to impact our hearts and to change us. It's just not true. Even church signs. I'm just saying that's the thing I have contempt for. So, God uses all means to realign us because he wants us to be true and right and fitting. And I think I'm going to read you James chapter 1 because James is the straight shooter of the New Testament. Doesn't mince words. And this is what he says, and I think this is your exhortation. He says, in my exhortation, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, stays at it, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed, flourish in his doing. So what has God spoken to you through his word that he wants to bless in your doing of it? Maybe even from this morning. What does he want to bless you in your doing of it? That's the business he's in. Well, the Feast of Tabernacles, there's this, um, it's a reenactment, right? It's it's this reenactment of the traversing of the wilderness for 40 years and God's care and provision for this stiff-necked, angry, dysfunctional group of people. It's a reenactment. And we come every week to the ultimate reenactment. To the ultimate realignment moment right here. Loved ones, the reason why we do this every week is because if we, if we take the reality of what's manifesting itself here seriously to heart, if we're, if we're, if we're prepared and if we're listening attentively, then, then this realigns you. Because this is a table of, of weeping and rejoicing, right? It took the death of the Son of God for you, for your stiff-neckedness, for your great blasphemies, which blaspheme all the time. That's how bad it was. It was that bad a news. It was that much weeping. And it's a table of rejoicing because he chose. He chose for you. And, what he, and in the choosing, you know what he said? He said, this is a time of rejoicing. This is a time where you're indeed going to drink the sweet wine and you're going to eat the fat. And as you receive it, you're also supposed to take this amazing thing and you're supposed to be giving it away and sharing it with the people who don't know that and don't know the great weeping and the great rejoicing. That's, that's the people of this table. That's who we are. And that's what you're invited into this morning is to come in to receive this meal, this reenactment, this realignment. Let it realign your heart to him. He wants to be with you. He wants to restore you. He wants, he wants your tires to be moving towards knowing him more, loving him more, and being freer and flourishing like you never have before. That's what he does. 
that's the work he wants to accomplish. Will you let him? Will you let him? Let's pray. Father, oh, how you love us and how you've displayed it time and time again throughout history and never like any time like this where, where your body was broken and your blood was spilled. And so we want to enter this moment with our eyes wide open, with our lives in front of us, saying, Lord, would you, would you search us and know our hearts? Would you invite us into the right kind of weeping and the fullness of the rejoicing? Would you realign us for flourishing that we may be a blessing? Bless us, we pray, O Christ, as we receive these things. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. If you belong to Christ, this is your meal. It's a great meal of weeping and rejoicing. So come receive the body and blood of Christ for you.